Good to see you again. Welcome back to the Gallery of Curiosities. I remain, as always, your humble host, Osgood. You know, I have been getting some rather strongly worded letters of complaint from listeners recently about the exhibits being too dark. So, in an effort to appease these rather irate epistolarians, this evening's exhibit will be one for the children. A panto, if you will. Let us see now. What have I got in my collections here? Hmm, yes, 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 yes. A fairy tale would seem to be the thing. Something from the Brothers Grimm, perhaps? Hmm, no. Sometimes I do wonder if they picked that name on purpose. Let us look at the French selections for something a little lighter, shall we say? Charles Perrault, rather than Jacob and Wilhelm. Hmm. Cinderella. Perhaps not. It's terribly judgmental, don't you think? Let's see, what do we have here? Sleeping Beauty. Uh, no taking advantage of a nubile young woman whilst she's unconscious simply does not play well these days. Puss in Boots? Not in front of the children, no, no, no. Not on my watch. Ah, here we go. This is a personal favorite, why not? Bluebeard. Our exhibit for this evening comes from M.E. Bronstein, a PhD student in comparative literature who writes short stories when she should be working on her dissertation. Her writings have appeared in Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Miscreations, Gods, Monstrosities, and Other Horrors, Michigan Quarterly Review, Mixtape, and elsewhere. You can find her at mebronstein.com. The Seventh Wife's Confessions by M. E. Bronstein The Baron touched the rose I had tucked into my chignon and chided me for my presumption, my thoughtless harvest of his garden's treasures. I did not know what to say at first, since the Baron had spent so much time giving things to my sisters and me, insisting that we make ourselves at home. I paused, considered, then apologized. I promised I would not take a rose again without his express permission. The Baron's considerable gut wobbled as he laughed. Never fret, he said. He gathered another rose from an adjacent bush an even richer shade of burgundy than the first. The dark red of its petals, their edges nearly black, put me in mind of a singed page. The Baron bowed over his hand as he presented the flower to me. 
But you must realize that such treasures of mine come at a price. In time, I shall demand something from you in return. I accepted the proffered rose. And whatever shall you ask of me? The Baron winked. Consult your imagination, he said. And I think you may divine the answer. When we first received the Baron's invitation to his estate, my sisters expressed some wariness at the prospect of encouraging his attentions. We knew very well that he meant to court one of us. I, however, became the Baron's most enthusiastic advocate. My sisters tried to remind me of the rumors. Some spoke of a curse. And should we shun him for that? I asked. If he is cursed, he deserves our compassion all the more. I would be honored to be the Baron's guest. I persuaded myself that I was being thoughtful. I had been reading, you see. I had grown up dazzled by my father's stories of his travels. In his absence, I would try to sate my hunger for distance and splendid places by reading gothic novels or the travel diaries of adventurers long dead. Lately, I had taken to lighter fare. Monsieur Perrault, Madame de Villeneuve, Madame Lepron de Beaumont. I would stay out in the garden until dusk with a copy of The Magasin des Enfants in my lap. That little book managed to circulate between many young ladies in those days, gifted to us by wise governesses who wished to teach us virtue. I devoured the tale of Le Belle et les Bêtes, without absorbing the appropriate moral instruction, perhaps. I spent so much time like this, reading in the garden, wishing myself elsewhere, that when at last a new path opened up before me, a path gilded by sunlight, lined with roses, I could not resist. I wanted to leave as my eldest married sister had, but more gloriously, and outdo my younger sisters who had yet to wed. And so, perhaps you will understand why my imagination galloped away with me. Perhaps you will understand how the Baron so easily won my favor. Every corner of the Baron's estate burst with evidence of his wealth, though it was wealth in urgent need of a dusting. Imposing chandeliers interrupted the amber dim, strands of crystal weeping from branches of brass, and here and there, scattered across oak-paneled walls, immense, tarnished mirrors and paintings of the canals of Venice or Dutch still lives in elaborate frames of writhing gold. We dined at an immense table of polished walnut and pecked and sipped at Volovon, stuffed with duck, candied citron, claret and silver goblets. The Baron himself did not, at first, appear to cut quite as glittering and glamorous a figure as his home. An imposing curtain of beard fell from his chin, and above the beard he had a face like a bloodhound's, heavy-lidded eyes, mouth flanked by weary folds of flesh. But when he spoke of his travels, 
of all the sights he had seen and the illustrious company he kept, his eyes became brighter, his tangled curls more romantic, and the lines upon his face seemed to tell a story rather than speak of his age. He is like a walking book, I thought, and I wondered what tragedy had engraved those lines had caused that overgrown weed of a beard to consume his features. Perhaps he had been more princely once. I had little experience charming men, but the naive awe I expressed as the Baron spoke apparently pleased him. My sisters, who had not read quite so much as I had, found it rather more difficult to retain his attention. Soon, the Baron and I were leaning nearer and nearer to each other, whispering and chuckling like intimates. I noticed a strange necklace shimmering beneath his beard and asked if I could see it. No, I am afraid not. It is a special, secret treasure, he said, smirking, that only the Baroness has ever had access to. Does it weigh upon you, then, in the absence of a baroness? I asked. Indeed, he said, bowing his head as though he could feel the necklace, the secret, dragging him down. It does. Well, I did my best to offer him a winning smile. We shall have to remedy that. While we spoke and ate, a clockwork galleon shuddered up and down the table, transporting pastries rather than sailors. It came to a stop before me, and I flinched and let my spoon clatter to the table in surprise as its diminutive cannons fired. A little gilded cannonball of chocolate settled upon my plate. The Baron chuckled softly at my gasps. And so I married the Baron. At first, the strange beauty of my new home entranced me. Various treasures glittered and ticked within the dim depths of many a room. Everywhere there were little lacquered music boxes, marble satyrs lolling against clocks, golden lilies that blossomed upward into candlesticks. All of this, the Baron liked to inform me, is yours. I thought of noble beasts who lavished gifts upon their lovely house guests, golden dresses and diamonds to drive their wicked sisters mad with envy. And so I draped my arms around his neck, or up to his shoulders rather, as far as I could reach, and he lowered his head to permit me to kiss him. Though the house enchanted me, I liked to hear him talk of the world beyond it. The Baron showed me tokens of his travels, Murano glass goblets, fine white and blue porcelain, engravings of volcanoes and cocoa trees. I savored the implied promise in every object, every word, that one day I would see the distant places these treasures had come from. The world itself would unfold for me, become my most expansive and vivid book. Then, 
the Baron said that he would show me his favorite treasure. He led me up a narrow stairwell, very poorly lit. The dark deepened as we ascended, and I noticed a strange set of marks upon the steps, like misplaced musical notes, and in the distance, a faint, rhythmic ticking. At the top of the stairs, the Baron opened a door and we entered his theater of automata, a dark room full of mahogany and heavy maroon curtains. It was then that he revealed the ornament beneath his beard. He reached behind his neck and played with a clasp. Then he held out the golden chain for me to examine and housed upon it a shining ring and a set of small, almost doll-sized keys. The Baron opened an assortment of cabinets and used each key in turn to operate a little dulcimer player, a fox hunter in a red coat, a little ballerina. Something about the lustrous black glass of the fox hunter's eyes unnerved me, and I turned my attention to the ballerina. She pirouetted in slow circles, her skirt like a drooping flower starved of water. I eyed my husband as he watched the ballerina dance and wondered at the hunger, the rapt fascination that illuminated his features. A strange twinge that I recognized as jealousy, or something much akin, stirred painfully beneath my skin. I wished that he would look upon me thus. You are fond of these creatures, aren't you? I said. I suppose I am, said the Baron. They do as they are told. That is a rare talent. I reached out to touch the gossamer hem of the ballerina's skirt, and the Baron's hand swept down like a hawk and seized upon my own. Please, he said. They are delicate. Soon the Baron had to leave. He had warned me that business would often take him away in this manner. Whatever shall I do in your absence? I asked him. My disappointment must have been evident. The Baron grasped my chin gently, tilted my face toward his, and encouraged me to speak my mind. I had hoped that I might accompany you, I admitted. The Baron smiled at the notion. I'm afraid that you shall have to satisfy yourself exploring here, he said, for the time being at least. That would not do. I suspected my husband might be persuadable in these matters, and so I insinuated myself against him, played with stray coils of his beard. He emitted a soft sound, rather like a purr, hands roaming across my arms. I laid my head against his chest, and that was when the glitter of the necklace caught my eye yet again. Without thinking, I reached for it until the Baron held my wrist, stilling my hand. You told me once that only the Baroness could have access to this treasure of yours, I reminded him. So I did. His grip upon me loosened. I slipped free. Well, I am the Baroness now, I said. And all of this, 
I gestured broadly toward the space surrounding us and then toward my husband himself. Is mine. So you are, he agreed, smiling. And so it is. He reached behind his neck, unclasped the necklace, and removed the keyring. He extracted one little key and showed it to me. Its handle was set with a delicate garnet shaped like a heart. He pressed it against my palm, then folded my hand shut and kissed my fingers. This is for you, my Baroness, he said. It unlocks a treasure hidden somewhere in this house. A bridal present, shall we say. I give you leave to explore in my absence and find it. May I have the other keys too? I asked. I knew that he fretted a great deal over the mechanics of his automata, which could grow capricious and run awry with very little provocation. I could attend to them in his absence. No, said the Baron, and his abruptness, the sudden harshness in his voice, startled me. Do not concern yourself with the automata. You're not permitted to enter that room unattended by your husband. He gripped my shoulder. Do you understand me? Yes, I said. I understand you. I went exploring. I tried my little key in various locks. An armoire in the library, a moldering door in the cellar, a jewelry box upon a mantelpiece. It did not fit. It did not open anything. The impossible game bored me and piqued my curiosity by turns. I wondered often if it was all just a ruse, a nonsensical challenge posed purely to keep me occupied. Eventually, my loneliness began to fester, and my imagination began to play games with me. Sometimes, in my solitude, I would speak to the air. And yet no invisible servants manifested to gratify my wishes. You are not La Belle, the house seemed to say, and I would scowl at the shadows and feel ridiculous. Before long, I began to eagerly await my husband's return. He was a strange man, but I liked his stories, and the way he would almost purr when I petted him, like a good princely beast. At last, he came back. But only for but one evening, he told me, before he must depart again. While we dined together, I begged to join him. You promised! I wanted to say, but then I realized that he never had. I fear now is not the time, he said. He watched me quietly as I dipped my silver spoon into my soup. I sipped uneasily, unsettled by the intensity of his gaze. He asked if I had yet found my present, and when I told him that I had not, a palpable quiver of scorn distorted the corner of his mouth. Is something wrong? I asked. Of course not, my dear, he said. We ate for a moment in silence before he added, I simply took you for a clever thing. I presumed that you would have discovered it by now. The sting of that remark nearly caused me to drop my spoon and splatter the both of us with soup. I asked him what he meant. 
No, no, he said, with that odd, mocking smile of his. He could not tell me. I must solve the riddle myself. And then he left me all alone again. I tried to persuade myself that he meant well, that he cared only for my comfort and safety and amusement. But in spite of all the clutter of chandeliers and oil paintings and sculpted nymphs, an oppressive sense of emptiness weighed upon me. Perhaps all the clockwork creatures scattered throughout the house were to blame. Whenever they ceased their mechanical motions, I found it difficult to persuade myself that they were not dead, that they had, in fact, never been alive. I took you for a clever thing. I resumed my search. I attempted to fit my key into the chests, doors, and cabinets that I had not already attempted, but it did not fit a single one. Naturally, after a time, the theater of Automata began to call to me. I began to wonder whether my husband's injunction that I avoid it had been entirely serious or playful. He might in fact have meant to test my boldness to see whether I would dare explore there, too, in search of my present. And as I thought of the tale I had read in the Magasin des Enfants, it occurred to me that the strange theater, so high up, almost hidden away, would be by far the likeliest location to contain an enchanted looking glass or something of that ilk, something of the enchanted beauty and luxury I felt I had been implicitly promised when I married the Baron. And so I ascended the narrow stairwell once again. The old wood beneath my feet groaned in protest, as though to warn me away. I ignored it, and it became more strident as I moved along. Everything was so very dark, and I wished I had brought a candle, and had to proceed slowly, feeling my way against the walls. Again, I noticed the strange dark marks on the steps, bent down to examine them. But then, my skirts snagged on something. I tried to move, but could not. A low, rumbling laugh from behind rippled through me, sent my pulse thrumming. Where precisely do you think you are going? I instructed you not to enter the theater of Automata in my absence. I looked over my shoulder, and there was the Baron. He managed to loom in spite of lurking a few steps below me, and he had a handful of my skirt bunched up in one clenched fist like a ruined, overflowing mockery of flour. I had not heard even the faintest hint of his footfalls. I had not known he would return so soon. The Baron wrenched backward and I fell down. My elbow and chin cracked against the stairs, and I gasped around the acrid taste of blood. I had bitten my own tongue. I shook as I touched my face, felt for bruises, for wounds. How long do you intend to continue lying there in that ridiculous state? Get up at once and greet your husband. Trembling, I forced myself to climb to my feet and stumbled back toward the Baron, 
who took me by the waist to lift me down from the final step between us. His gentleness in that moment belied the force he had just employed to prevent me from reaching the top of the stairs. He ignored my feeble expressions of happiness that he had come home at last. I quavered as he towered over me and told me that I had been too pampered, that I needed to learn respect for the rules of his house, and he dug his nails into my arm and twisted and I cried out, You're hurting me, I told him. And so I shall continue, he answered, until you remember the lessons I have taken such pains to instill in you. That evening, I had a strange dream. I saw the ballerina. Her arms wavered through my mind in a gesture I found almost plaintive. I watched her as she went round and round. A couple of stray notes of mechanical music drifted out of her cabinet as she danced, until the Baron appeared, put out a hand, forced her to grind to a stop while her gears screeched in protest. The strident cry of her clockwork forced me awake, and I covered my ears, crying out. The subsequent nights brought much of the same. I beheld uncanny visions of dancing and ticking and screaming metal. And then, stranger images emerged that I did not understand. Of bones and rose petals and old books with moldering pages. Sometimes I could smell fire, something burning out of sight. At first, my husband tried to feign something resembling kindness. He observed the darkness around my eyes asked why I was not resting well. What disturbed my sleep? Was I not happy? Had he not given me everything I could possibly desire? I stared fixedly at my husband's necklace of keys, even buried beneath his beard. An internal gear clicked. I thought of one of his clockwork calendars. It had a little window full of painted stars and moon by night, that would rotate away to be supplanted by a smiling sun come morning. So, too, did one story begin to shift out of view, to be usurped by another. While my husband bathed, he would leave his necklace of keys upon a hook beside the door to his bedchamber. I realize now that this apparent oversight could not have been so accidental after all. He meant to taunt me to tempt me. Like a good rabbit, I fell easily into this trap, made of glittering gold rather than serrated steel. I snatched the keys from the hook, then I ran, stumbling over my own skirts. My husband was not the sort to luxuriate in his bath. I would not have much time. I went up the stairs to the theater, with a candle this time and I realized that the dark marks that peppered the steps reminded me rather of rose petals. But when I leaned down and held my candle closer, I recognized the seeming petals as dried drops of blood, inking warnings into the steps as I passed, and accompanying these scars that stained the wood, that maddening ticking louder than I remembered it. It became more insistent the further up I went. 
By the time I came to the door at the top of the stairs, I convinced myself that the blood drops and the ticking were connected, that they were like the perforations in a music roll, going round and round beneath me, as though I had fallen inside a music box made of wounds. The whirring and clicking filled my ears up with clamoring warnings, seemed to scream at me to go away. The keyring rattled in my hand, harmonized with the muffled mechanics I could hear as I entered the theater. I came to the ballerina first, opened her up, and inside the delicate ceramic shell of her body, I found a yellowing fragment of bone. I thought of the Baron's grip around my wrist. I thought of when he had grabbed my dress and tripped me upon the stairs. I thought of his low, rumbling chuckle that seemed to radiate from some dark, unseen cavern. Trembling, I backed away from the ballerina. But her painted eyes followed me, and then she began to twirl in place. Something about the arc of her arms spoke to me, looked like a gesture of entreaty, a plea for recognition, for help. One by one, I used the keys on the ring and opened up all of the automata and found the remains of all of my husband's previous six wives, the finger bones of a wife who had been a great musician encased within the dulcimer player, a skull buried within the bowels of the galleon, golden hairs matted with blood concealed behind a clock face framed by lazy satyrs. He used some sort of varnish to seal their bones and skin and hair as they had been at the moment of their slaughter, and so all the scarred and tattered ivory, the screaming remains, gleamed beneath an obscene, slick sheen like a slug's trail. The fragmented women who surrounded me whispered through my mind as I read their chaos of parts. They begged me not to become a part of their tale. The fox hunter troubled me the most, with his blank glass eyes, his blood-red coat. I took up my key with the garnet and set it into his back. As I had known it would, it fell neatly into place. A clockwise turn in a circle would set his arm shuddering into motion as though to fire his rifle. A counterclockwise turn made a pair of little doors click open, allowing me access to his inner workings. And yet, when I opened him up, I found nothing. He was all hollow inside, save for his ticking mechanics, and yet, his emptiness chilled me far more than the flesh and bone I had expected to find. This is for you, my Baroness, he had said. And then, a faintly floral scent behind me and a low rumble of a chuckle. I turned around and found my husband, clean from his bath, beard unusually tidy and groomed. He was holding his favorite poignard. I thought for a moment about leaping at him, clawing at his eyes with my nails. Then I shrank away instead. My dear girl, 
he said. You really ought to know better. Woman's curiosity is always her undoing, you know. I contemplated the fox hunter. My fate. Not always, I said. Not always? Whatever do you mean? Young ladies like myself are so often confined that our curiosity often becomes our only means of movement, of exploration. We imagine ourselves elsewhere into a more pleasant story. We imagine ways out. Curiosity is often a woman's only defense, I said. But not yours, my dear, said my smiling husband as he raised his poignard. My last thought before he stuffed my heart into the chest of the fox hunter. My sisters. At least it happened to be me, rather than them. She was an elegant young woman, my husband's next wife. Silken black curls, a delicate frame, small and doll-like hands. She, too, had been reading fanciful books, the Magasin des Enfants and others. My husband preferred curious creatures who liked to read, whose dreams could run away with them. Who else would dare to wed him? It took an inventive mind indeed to look at the story engraved upon his features and the glittering chain beneath his tangled beard and imagine that it all portended anything good. The Baron showed her his treasures, the galleon, the ballerina, me. He turned the key in my back so that I fired my little gun at a target newly installed upon one of the theater's walls. His eighth wife marveled at the potent reality of the smoke, the scent of gunpowder. The Baron always did so appreciate verisimilitude in his treasures. He loved little cannons and arrows and guns that could actually threaten, could actually inflict some harm. The Baron showed his new bride the carapace that would one day serve as her coffin, though he naturally did not introduce it to her as such. A little acrobat who could spin in circles, rotating head over heel across a pair of silver bars. She wore a coat patterned with alternating ruby and jet lozenges, like a harlequin, and a crown of velvet roses. How pretty! breathed the eighth wife. She reached out to touch the roses until her husband prevented her. Later, he gave her the key to her own prison cell, just as he had given me mine. And then he waited. I looked on as the eighth wife explored, as she grew curious and bolder and bolder as she disobeyed her husband, as he doubtless knew she would while he lurked and watched, waiting to punish her for her inevitable transgressions. We wives had ways of communing, if only through dreams and shadows and the reading material we left in our wake. The sixth wife, my predecessor in the ballerina, grew urgent, felt determined that this time we must break this horrible circuit. We must cease spinning through this infernal cycle the fifth wife, 
encased within the dulcimer player, grew petulant and asked, Why her? Why should she be the one who gets to break the pattern? A fair question, I supposed, and I would be lying if I claimed that I did not feel some of the same resentment, that I did not pose the same questions. Why could I not have been the one to act of order, to cease repeating the same damnable story? I had been too terrified to listen to the other wives and heed their warnings. But perhaps the eighth wife would be more attentive. Perhaps we could make her recognize the tale she had joined sooner than we had. While the eighth wife crept through the house and slipped her key into different locks and circled ever nearer to the theater, the dulcimer player and the ballerina and I debated her fate. The other wives were divided. I would have to render the final vote and make our decision. We wondered, why this time? Why her? We ought to have asked it the other way round, perhaps. Why us? Why us seven times over? I whispered through the eighth wife's sleep of a book I had left in a chest beneath our bed. Histoires ou contes du temps passé avec des moralités, and one tale in particular, Les Barbes Bleues. Bluebeards and beasts are often more alike than they seem at first. One can so very easily metamorphose into the other. It only takes a few vague alterations of circumstances. The eighth wife came to me. Purpled sickles carved beneath her eyes that had not been there when she first arrived. She held up my copy of Histoires aux Cons du Temps Passé. She opened it up and scanned the pages. Curiosity, she read, in spite of its attractions, frequently comes at the price of regret. I watched while she tore out the page bearing this moral and fed it into one of the house's many porphyry hearths, where it curled and blazed until it resembled the blackened rose petals in the garden. Then she set about engaging in a strange surgical procedure. She plucked at the stitching of Monsieur Perrault and Madame la Prince de Beaumont's books, released the pages containing Les Barbes Bleues and Les Belles et Les Bêtes, and began to tie them together. I understood. Her desire to partake in the one story might have gotten her into this tangle, but her recognition of the other would get her out. We had only to stitch the two narratives together until they came out right. The tale with too much hope in it that did not match our circumstances, and the one that did match, but judged us wrongly. The eighth wife settled down to sit before the hearth, placed me on the floor before her, contemplated me. You must help me, she said. I cannot do this alone. I was more than willing. The eighth wife took me to his bedchamber with her. She sat down in an armchair and balanced me upon her lap, adjusting my posture and tilting my arm until she had it right, until my rifle pointed at the baron in an appropriate gesture of accusation. 
as though he felt our collective gaze upon him, the Baron awakened from his tranquil dreams. Whatever are you doing, you ridiculous creature? He asked. He started to crawl out from beneath his richly embroidered covers, but stopped as my rifle followed his motions. His attention slipped between his wife and me. I told you not to touch. As I have told you countless times, they are delicate. I know, she said, but less so than you think, my dear. A slow smile spread across his face. I remembered when I had backed away from him in the theater, utterly failed to do him any injury. I had hesitated. I suppose he believed that she would, too. But she had been curious. She had been reading, and she had read and reshaped the right story this time. I knew she would not hesitate, and this time neither would I. Don't be a fool, said the Baron. The Eighth Wife turned the key in my back. When this evening's narrator, Alex Ford, isn't rocking around the nation in her band, Ford Theatre Reunion, she's holed up in her guest room following a different passion, recording audiobooks and editing manuscripts. An avid reader and writer, she delights in helping people bring their creativity to life. You can check out her exploits, mystery bruises, and a most handsome cat on Facebook or Instagram. Thank you again, Ms. Ford. But now, the hour is late. You should be on your way. Do take care of each other, and come visit us next time at the Gallery of... Curiosities. Gallery of Curiosities is produced under a Creative Commons International 4.0 non-commercial attribution, no derivatives license. Our theme song is Ashes Ashes by Deus Ex Vaporamachina. For full show notes, as always, please do visit us on the web at gallerycurious.com. Mm-hmm.